0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Radio Free Acton, the official podcast of the Acton Institute dedicated to the study of religion and liberty. I'm your host, Caroline Roberts. And on today's show, we're going to start out with a conversation between Drew McGinnis, editorial director and research fellow here at Acton, and Eric Hutchinson, associate professor of classics at Hillsdale College, and the translator of a book recently released in Acton's bookshop on the law of nature, written by Niels Hemmingson. Drew and Eric will talk a bit more about the book, and help define what natural law is. Then on Upstream, host Bruce Edward Walker speaks with Titus Tichera, film critic and contributor to National Review, The Federalist, and more, about Netflix's new sci-fi film, Anon. If you're interested in any resources, articles, or books mentioned in today's episode, you can check them out in our show notes, posted every Wednesday at blog.acton.org.
1: You're listening to Radio Free Acton. My name is Drew McGinnis, and today I am speaking with Eric Hutchinson of Hillsdale College about uh, the recent translation of Niels Hemmingson's On the Law of Nature. And uh, this book is uh, published by CLP Academic, an imprint of the Acton Institute. And it's part of our series, uh, Sources in Early Modern Economics, Ethics, and Law, uh, that I am co-general editor of with uh, Wim de from from KU Leuven. And on the phone with us is uh, Eric Hutchinson. Uh, Eric, hello, how are you doing?
2: I'm great, thanks for having me.
1: Glad to have you. Um, Eric, uh, for our listeners, Eric is Associate Professor of Classics at Hillsdale College, and uh, he's Director of the Collegiate Scholars Program there. And uh, this uh, book really is uh, right in your wheelhouse of Academic interests, am I right?
2: yes, that's correct uh probably the the major focus of my academic research has to do with the intersection of the classical world the the Greek and Roman worlds and uh and the christian faith um and and so the the two primary periods that I'm interested in are late antiquity, especially the fourth, fifth, sixth centuries uh and and early modernity the reformation and post reformation periods where a lot of uh a, a lot of the issues that you find in uh early christian writers resurface again through the you know the combination of the rise of um humanism and renaissance scholarship and a kind of increased vigor in reforming the articulation of the christian faith
1: and so uh Niels Hemmingsen um, is not a name that's familiar to a lot of people. Um, he uh, studied under uh, Philip Melanchthon at the University of Wittenberg, right?
2: Correct. Yes, that's correct.
1: And uh, so this uh, treatise, this is the first ever uh, English translation of the treatise. Uh, why um, Why did you want to translate it? You just uh, like translating or <laughs> why? why this I, I treatise? Mean, I, <laughs>
2: I do. I do like translating. Um, the the way I came to this text in particular, though, is actually through a couple of people. One of whom is a colleague of yours at uh, at Acton. I don't even know how long it's been now—five, maybe five years ago. Uh, Jordan Baller uh, sent me sent me an email with a short description of the text and a link to a scan of it on Google Books, and said, you know take a look at this it sounds like the kind of thing you might be interested in uh, you know let me know what you think so i you know i started going going through the text and lo and behold it, it turned out i was in fact really uh really interested in it so i started trying to get myself up to speed to be able to do some serious work on it which finally you know culminated in the in the release of the book a few weeks ago
1: and so it's a uh, of course the the title uh, gives away the topic. It's uh, on the law of nature. Right. Uh, so it's a treatise on the natural law. Um, and so there's a lot of discussion on natural law uh, in academic circles, philosophers, ethicists, etc. But for a lot of people, natural law is a foreign, strange concept, calls up ideas of like, the law of gravity and such yeah, things. Right. Um, so uh, what is a uh, what does Hemingson say it is and uh you know why is that uh, why is that important for us uh, to kind of wrap our minds around
2: right so he's when he's thinking of the the law of nature obviously you know as you said he's he's thinking about ethics practical action in the uh particularly in domestic and civic spheres so he's he's not really thinking about you know the second law of thermodynamics or something and so what what he wants to do is set out an account of first of all of the fact that this thing that he calls the law of nature uh that it exists and second how we know about it and third about how it sort of works in practical prudential terms so the way that he the way that he defines it is as a kind of knowledge that is universally shared among mankind so it's a, 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 I guess what I would want to say is a, a knowledge of the law what he calls the law of nature um at least in a in a kind of rudimentary form is present in everyone by virtue of its having been imprinted on their minds by God. And so what what, what this yields at its most basic is uh, what he calls principles of knowing and acting. Um, so some very basic first principles such as honorable things should be pursued, shameful things should be avoided. Um, and then he tries to show how how that can be used to generate a, uh, a variety of conclusions that are in agreement with what he takes to be the proper end of man, which is service to God and and glorifying God.
1: Right. So you have in uh, in the treatise, then he discusses all those different spheres: the the house right. the household, uh, society, or the civil society, and even uh, the the church, correct, or the spiritual realm
2: right the spiritual realm as well so the you know kind of the classic three estates um he he wants to show how the same principles are at work in all three of these spheres or estates because all all three of them are you know necessary components of human life uh and given that the actor in all all three of them is the same that is man the human being um the 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 very basic principles on which they are founded and and by which they operate are going to be the same in all of them
1: Hmm. i think one of the uh thrilling things for me um I, i you know i thoroughly enjoyed uh the book and uh working through it and um one of one thing I thought was thrilling is his use of so many classical sources, and that, that could be maybe a, a barrier to some people as they open it because there's a lot of Greek <laughs> in here, right. Um, right? Greek quotations. Thankfully, they're all translated, so that makes it accessible. Um, but you have the typical writers like Plato and Aristotle and Cicero, but he he's got all these other sources from the poets and uh, and Greek dramatists. And what does I mean? Uh, help us understand why is that what does that have to do with natural law?
2: Um <clears throat> so I would say a couple of things. Uh you're you're absolutely correct. He is quoting not just kind of what we might consider the usual suspects, Plato, Aristotle, Cicero, etc. But he's got a lot of uh a, a lot of more obscure writers, and particularly nowadays more obscure, you know, a number there are probably a number of names uh names of writers he quotes that will probably be unfamiliar to a lot of readers, so I've tried to provide um little biographical notices for all of for all of those or as many of those as we have biographical notices for. So I said there are probably a couple of different things that he's up to. One of them is to demonstrate the long history of the kind of task that he has set for himself and is therefore showing it's it's really deep, you know, anchoring in uh in antiquity and the history of human thought but another one of the things that uh, another thing that i think he's doing is to say look this this law of nature that i'm talking about really is universal it's something that is grasped in some form by uh by most human minds again i, I mean in as he defines it it's present in in everyone just by nature and so he i think would want to say you know there's evidence of this it's this is open to observation we can we can see just by observing that this is something that people bear witness to and so we can we can do that through the literature which is the one of the main things that he does and so he says look this isn't just in uh in Philosophers who are kind of spending all of their time thinking about issues of ethics and the human mind and so on and so forth, but even in poets right it comes out if you if you just read carefully, you see that even in uh poets and and various other kinds of of writers uh, <clears throat> rhetoricians whatever um if you look closely you'll see that the kinds of things that they're saying also bear witness to the existence of this law of nature that they assume it and and show that they too um act uh act as though it is a thing that that really does oh. exist
1: if and, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And so it's, uh, he's, in a sense, he's trying to prove its universality, um, or at least ilust- so. illustrate it um, through right. a wide variety of genres and sources. And um, and in the midst of that, uh, he cannot avoid talking about the virtues. In fact, uh, he doesn't try. He has an entire chapter, uh, the longest chapter, uh, that uh, is on the, the cardinal virtues. Um, correct.
2: Yeah, that's correct. And I, and... And this to me is one of the most interesting things about the about the treatise and, and perhaps one of the things that will be most striking to a lot of modern readers. Um he Hemingson wants to give what he considers to be a conclusive case that there is no sort of rupture or disharmony between the truths of revelation and the Truths that are discoverable by the by the process of reasoning and reflecting on nature. So right before the chapter that you mentioned, um, which is really quite long, there is a very short chapter on the Decalogue or the Ten Commandments, um, where he, uh, you know, gives you a bunch of syllogisms that are intended to show, look, the the. The principles that are enshrined in the Ten Commandments are deducible by a process of reasoning. And then what he wants to do is say, and, by the way, um, those are the same the, – the, the kinds of actions that are being commanded in the Decalogue are identical with – I mean, the ethical content of, of uh, revealed ethics is identical with – the ethical content of the virtues, as they have usually been discussed—so justice, courage, temperance, prudence—there um, is there is a harmony between those things in their truest form. And it's not as though he says, "Well, everybody got all of these things right in absolutely all of their details uh, in in every instance before you know being clarified by revelation or what have you." But when properly understood, those those four virtues are and and they're various they various parts so the kind of subordinate virtues that are subject to those four major categories are in um are in harmony with what we find you know scripture saying god has commanded people to do
1: uh, and i i've uh, just i've benefited greatly from the book uh, already as a sort of a reference uh, work on uh even the terminology of the virtues you know you mentioned mm-hmm. that he goes through the four cardinal virtues but he also has all these um subparts uh, of each virtue um right. and just to, just for example under his discussion of justice he's he talks about uh, natural affection gratitude innocence punishment benevolence liberality friendship and others um and he has the greek term and he's dealing with the, the classical sources and giving clear definitions and so I, I just find it immensely helpful, just even as a reference, to go back and say, okay, what does that term mean, and what are some of the sources behind it? Um, and he just does a great job, I think, of unfolding it. Um, and, you know, I'm struck by, again, here's a, another instance of a Protestant who is very interested in the virtues in the early modern period, um, which today to a lot of uh, people would seem strange, but it was not strange in his own day, right?
2: no it wasn't it wasn't strange at all, you know, if you think about what he's doing from the kind of sort of classical two kingdoms perspective that you find in Luther and melanchthon and, and lots of others um, you know there is this temporal kingdom, the world still has its own affairs to tend to, even after the accomplishment of redemption and <clears throat> redemption doesn't do away with the you know with the basic contours of the world with principles that are necessary for having an ordered harmonious uh social and civic life and so on and so forth so this kind of character education or uh inculcation of ethical teaching is really really important in um in protestant reforms to education um you find it all over the writings of melanchthon and lots of lots of others too you know uh people still need to be trained in uh in the virtues in order to be able to function properly in a well in a well-ordered society
1: well um eric thank you uh so much. Uh, I, again, this uh, book is excellent. We could go on and, and talk even more. There's a great closing chapter on the conscience, which um, right, yeah. mean, we, could, <laughs> we could talk about that as well. But um, uh, I think uh, it's a, a great addition to not only the academic scholarship on Hemingson and on natural law, but uh, as I said, it's a great reference point for anybody interested in these topics Um, so uh, thank you uh, for joining us today it's uh, Eric Hutchinson he's associate professor of classics at Hillsdale College and he's the translator and editor of uh, the new book by CLP academic called on the law of nature uh, a demonstrative method by the Lutheran scholar Niels Hemmingson thanks for joining us Eric
2: thank you very much for having me
0: It might come as a surprise, but poverty rates in the developing world are dropping dramatically. In fact, economic growth in developing nations has far outpaced the growth of high-income countries. Not only the world has experienced a historic reduction in poverty over the last 25 years, but global income today is much more equal than at any time in the last 100 years. Join Acton on September 27 in Grand Rapids for a lively pub lecture on the good news about poverty alleviation. You can register at acton.org slash events. Last night when I was chasing her, that's where it starts. What I see changes the stairs stretch. It's an optical illusion, which later disappears from my record. And it doesn't end there. At this moment, I'm seeing... At the platform a train that isn't there Placing a moving image in real time who can hack a human being
3: Hello and welcome to Upstream. I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker, and today we're going to talk a little bit about the future of technology, which is actually the present of technology, and we're going to talk about a Netflix film that's been out for quite some time, but it recently came across my radar because of an essay written for a Catholic World Report by Titus Techera, my old friend, who is making his third appearance today on Upstream. It's called Netflix's Anon love in the time of total surveillance hello titus how are you today
4: hello bruce glad to be back it's it seems like we're always talking about fairly grim uh, sci-fi uh, stories and i said i think it's because the talent in storytelling is quite worried about our situation how we get to the basics of human relationships with love and friendship in a time when we are living increasingly artificial lives turning into ghosts of a digital kind, which is, of course, new to us, and so I suppose it's normal to be worried. Right. Well,
3: what prompted uh, this essay was a movie called Anon, which is directed by Andrew Nicole. You call him one of the first great sci-fi writers in America, and uh, he's responsible for Gattaca and The Truman Show. So uh, what else can you tell us about uh, Nicole and, and his worldview? Um,
4: Andrew Nichols um, very interested above all in the relationship between humans and technology what kind of effects technology will have on us and where are we going Uh, The Truman Show which was a big success directed by Peter Weir starring Tom Hanks at the top of his powers was a movie about social construction and corporate control can we really think our way into a kind of uh, nostalgic 50s paradise, could we really, if we believe the, in the right sort of surveillance, in that case, reality TV, could we really reconstruct our society to fit the, those nostalgic ideas? And uh, in that movie, Truman, the American everyman hero, manages to escape surveillance and all, this already establishes this big theme for Andrew Nichol, how love is the opposition to technological control of life. This happens in uh, Anon as well. It, Anon is the story of a near future where uh, reality has been supplanted by technology, by Supplementation. Everything is more and better in higher definition and with better recall. Our eyes are electric. Our souls become electric. In Anon, that is to say, the world is barren up until digital technology overlays on the world information information about other people, advertising, your dreams and fantasies, whatever you might want, whatever gets you out of the house, it's all added digitally. The world is otherwise barren. Surveillance itself changes in this new situation where you live at the mercy of the cloud because there's nothing you can hide anymore. Privacy has been uh, repealed, not by tyranny or evil government action, but by popular demand, so to speak.
3: Uh, Like Blade Runner, it's very much uh, a film noir in in regard. We have kind of the hard-boiled detective who has new tools at his disposal.
4: Yes, you're right. It's uh, It again replays this form of individualism where you get the stylishness of mid-century America, the, from suits to cars, uh, and on the other hand, the kind of brutalist architecture and minimal modernist interior decoration that always signals this world is somehow too glamorous to be real and too barren to be inhabitable by human beings. So with Clive Owen in and on, like with uh, Blade Runner and Harrison Ford, you get a sense that there's a reason this guy is miserable. At some level, as a detective, he he wanted to believe in his world, in doing justice, in defending order, but he's become disenchanted with it because it's just not human enough. It, it can't speak to his longings, and this gradually becomes obvious, as with Harrison Ford and Blade Runner, because he becomes vulnerable to love. As he has a past that haunts him, there's also this other possibility that something might speak to his heart, something out there beyond the limits of the law, a hacker, played by Amanda Seyfried, who's uh, a young, beautiful woman with something to hide. It's not clear what she has to hide, but she insists, in a way nobody does in this futuristic world, on hiding whatever it is that she chooses to. That is to say in recreating her privacy. And so this agent of the law and order has to face the fact that you have to go beyond order and beyond uh, surveillance if you're going to really know who this woman hacker is and what his relationship to her should be. And uh, like in Blade Runner, he becomes deeply disenchanted with order because it is essentially lawless, he gradually finds. That is to say, from the point of view of the agents of order in Anon, anybody is expendable. You can sacrifice people who get in the way because they personally don't matter. When once you digitize humanity, you can figure out which ones matter and which ones don't. Right.
3: You write in your column the... The obedience that makes order possible is not, but every man is replaceable, which reminds me of uh, the old uh, eggs omelets dynamic yeah. where, where you have to break uh, many eggs to make a, a, a decent omelet. And that's that's where humanity seems to be headed. And and again, there's not a whole lot you can do in public today that isn't part of the uh, the public domain.
4: Yes, that's right. And it seems like we're going ever more in that direction because whatever the world was like before, we somehow don't think it's good enough. We want to add something to life. We want to discover something more worthwhile going digital. And we seem to be willing to pay quite a price. It's not just celebrities who all of a sudden find themselves under accusations or, of course, any number of other people who find their privacy violated, but it's the sort of stuff that you see in um, Andrew Nichols' movie. Loneliness is going to look different in a digital world because you don't even have prior human relationships that really bind you. you. So you don't exactly feel lost. You simply feel anchorless. It's not that you grew up in the normal world and then leaped into digital, lured by the attraction. It's that in the future, nobody will be born in the normal world. Nobody will come out of the associations of private life. You have to somehow break through and go beyond that if you're going to find out who a certain person really is. And that would, of course, mean to see, first of all, that they're not reducible to a set of data that there's something irreducible or mysterious about a person. is also about what attracts one to another.
3: Right. And um, before we go any further, I I would like to add for listeners that this is definitely an R-rated film, Uh, so there there might be objectionable material for some of our listening audience. But let's go back to the uh, philosophical implications of such an ordered world. And, uh, you know, Russell Kirk wrote about ordered liberty, but uh, both of those words are operative in that uh, one needs liberty as well as order. The whole film prompts the question, is a human individual good because they are forced to be good rather than make the personal choice to be good?
4: yeah the uh, russell kirk is a good way to think about this precisely because in anon you see how technology utterly separates order and liberty liberty ends up looking like nothing so much as chaos and order instead is completely enforced as you say people are forced to be good if they're to be good at all or, of course, to go back to T.S. Eliot, we're looking to build systems that are so perfect that no one will have to be good. That is to say, the the, the human powers, the striving to, to secure what's good for ourselves and for others and to live together with others in communities where we have some kind of common agreement on what the good is and how to pursue it, all this striving, all this difficulty, all this drama of human life is cancelled by a certain technological arrangement where it doesn't really matter what any human being is capable or is not capable of doing. The only question is what powers in the system Uh, control human action, at least at the margins. That is to say, when somebody steps over the boundaries, when somebody does something dangerous. So in a non-human action has been reduced to policing crime because everything else is under control. It's only when a criminal steps beyond the limits of order that some policeman has to chase after him. Otherwise, life has been reduced to such an extent that one of the shocking ideas in the film is that... Uh, the victims whose murder uh, Clive Owen investigates are utterly confused in their last moments because they see themselves from the point of view of their murderer. In order to wipe out any evidence, the murderer hijacks their eyes and shows them the world through the murderer's eyes. And for all of a sudden, these people have to look at themselves, therefore, in their utter pure vulnerability and, and lack of orientation in the world. All of a sudden, they realize that they have been propped up by an incredibly artificial, incredibly powerful system, without which they are utterly powerless. They cannot even move properly anymore. That's
3: a terrific point. And you know, let's, let's close out with uh, the the final paragraph of your essay, and where you discuss the title of the film. It's actually a pun. And so, please. Uh,
4: Yes, uh, anon, of course, is short for anonymous. In our modern world, we always shorten things. And anonymity here is tied up with freedom because it means not being able to be detected or being able to hide yourself from someone who wants to know you. This doesn't mean that you are simply unknowable or inintelligible. It means that you are knowable if you let yourself be known. That is a free gift. Knowledge of oneself. But anon, of course, is also an old English word from the Elizabethan age that means soon. And this is the logic of modernity. We do everything we do because we want things to work faster. We want them now. We want them right now. This is what the word modern means. It's an Italian adverb, a Latin word that means now, just now, right now. This is why when we talk about what's modern, it might be something from 1500 or something from 1900 or something from two years ago. Modernity always shifts forward with us. We can never have enough of it because we always want it now. That is to say, the logic of modernity is the logic of instantaneity. The desire to objectify ourselves as quickly as possible from desire to action, from image to reality... And to get in this way, the satisfaction, not just of a thing we want, but the satisfaction that we are real, that we can have consequences in this world, that we can affect things, we can make things be different. Like when you order stuff on Amazon and it's delivered within hours to you. Now, right now, just now. You can get what you want now. And you believe you are real for that reason, that you can instantiate yourself through your desires. You can objectify your will. And this, of course, doesn't leave any time for reflection. Reflection, instead, is not a now, a right now, soonest. It's, in a sense, it's when it's too late. You have to have things to think about. And often that means loss or failure. It means suffering. It means having tried to get something that you thought was worthwhile and failing at it and trying to live with the consequences. And that, of course, requires a very different understanding of time and uh, a far less willful attitude to the world in which we live and to other people. Well,
3: terrific. That's about all we have time for today. Titus Teixeira, I want to thank you for once again joining us and enlightening us with uh, your terrific insights that uh, are conveyed through some very terrific writing over a wide swath of uh, publications online and in print. So thank you for, for being here today.
4: Thanks a lot, Bruce. It's always a pleasure talking with you. And it's always a pleasure telling people about Andrew Nichol. Go watch Gattaca. All the best.
3: Yes, one of my favorite. Thank you. Uh, talking about Netflix's film, Anon, starring Clive Owen and Amanda Seafried, and directed by Andrew Nickel. And for Upstream this week, I'm your host, Bruce Edward Walker. I'd like to thank my producer, Caroline Roberts, my executive producer, John Caritas. And we'll talk to you again next week.
0: And with that, we've come to the end of another episode. Thank you for listening today. Let your friends know that they can listen to Radio Free Acton on Spotify or their favorite podcast app. If you want to reach our podcast team here at Acton, you can email us at rfa@acton.org or leave us a message at 888-705-4180. If you like what you hear on Radio Free Acton, don't forget to give us a rating on iTunes. This episode is produced by Caroline Roberts and edited by Nathan Moore.